Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I'm Don here with my co-host, V. Mama mentality for life. Today is May 21st, 2020. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you can be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. We are quarantined still and social distancing due to this coronavirus pandemic, but we're figuring out a way to bring you a show at all costs, and hopefully we can get out of this thing soon. On today's show, we will talk to Scotty Graham, Senior Associate Athletic Director at Arizona State University. We will also do some news and notes of popular sports, music, and pop culture stories from around the country, from a potential 112 versus Jagged Edge battle in Versus, The Last Dance, Notre Dame opening up, and so much more. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Remember now that our Patreon subscribers will get our episodes on Wednesdays a night early. These donations help keep our show going. If you want to help keep us on air, you can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. And don't forget, grab some Pilot Boys wristbands at shop.pilotboys.com. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? are listening to the pilot boys podcast we are here with a very special guest <laughs> man jack of all trades a man with a very very long resume huh. now he is the senior associate athletic director at arizona state university please welcome scotty graham to the show scotty what's up man man i appreciate it beyond honored um much respect i get a chance to be on the show and represent the Buckeyes, so that's always good. Anytime you get a chance to represent and save yourself the Buckeye Nation, you want to do that? Absolutely. A good thing, I can see you now. I don't know what happened, but now I can see you, so that's good. So Appreciate we're, you so, coming on, man. Yeah, so we're good to go, man. So we're going to jump right into it, man, because there's a lot to cover. Your your career, I mean, first of all, I mean, you've had multiple careers and been successful in all of them, and it, you know, and you're still going. It's amazing for us to watch kind of from a distance, but then you know, a little bit up close as well as we've gotten to know you. But uh, we're, we're going to start back back in the day, man. You know, you know, looking at your your history, obviously you played football at Ohio State. That's kind of our common link. Um, and but you're from New York, you know. And so I, my first question to you is, how did you even end up at Ohio State from New York? There are not a ton of players that go to Ohio State from New York. Not many, but a few. In fact, Pete Johnson went to my high school, played for the mm, Bengals. Yep. Um, so um, I think John Brockington. Uh, yeah, other guys. Curtis Samuel, I think, is from New York too. Yeah. Now, um, this is when, when 1987, when I was coming out of high school. Um, donors could actually, or boosters could actually contact you. And um, this guy named Jerry Brownfield from Great Nick North. He said, "You read Great Gatsby? Great Nick North is Little Egg, Big Egg. So Big Egg mm-hmm. is Great Nick North." Right. He wrote, kept writing Coach Bruce, and just said, "Hey, this is a guy you got to see. This is a guy you got to see." And I didn't know where I was. I had never been on a plane before in my life. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I was going to Maryland or, or Syracuse. I was thinking I'm taking somewhere I could drive to. I'm not necessarily flying. Where is Ohio? Right. Um, right. So what turned you um, around and what made you, what made you say, you know, what is it that you saw that said, okay, this is where I need to be. I'm coming, I'm coming to Ohio State. Well, I saw people who looked like me. I mean, that mm. was unique to see a guy like Bill Miles, rest in peace, had a great yeah. homage to him, um, Billy Hill. Um, it was just so many people who, 
I could pattern myself after. I mean, I saw myself yeah. doing things successful after football. So it was just a great opportunity for me. And then secondly, the two best decisions I ever made was going to Ohio State. Excuse me, the Ohio State. When I played, we called it Ohio State. Joe mm-hmm. started the Ohio State. <laughs> right. um, although most people, I got to remind them, it's called the Ohio State University. That's why we say that. Absolutely. Um, and then I met my wife there. She's from Cleveland, and I got a chance to see what family represented. So, I mean, those, those are two best decisions I made in my life, obviously, going to the Ohio State University and then get a chance to meet this beautiful woman who I've been married to for 30 years. Yeah. One little question on your time at Ohio State um, is, you know, obviously, no matter when you played at Ohio State, you played with great players. Talk to us about some of the great players that were there at the time that you were there, some of the guys that you played, maybe any memorable moments that you had when you were at Ohio State. Um, it's just too many. Uh, but the thing about Ohio State, you know, when people don't understand it until they get a chance to live it, mm-hmm. you had to be political. You had to be intelligent. You had to be witty. You had to be smart. And you better be able to play. And you better be tough. Yeah. You had three other dudes who looked like you. Right. We had 14 running backs my freshman year. Wow. I mean, from Carlos Snow. Carlos mm-hmm. Snow was number one recruit in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emmitt Smith was number one recruit. Carlos was number two. Um, Jeff Graham, who played in the NFL. Vinny Clark was the first man draft pick. Kurt Herbstreit on college game day. Joey Galloway. Steve Tovar. You could just keep naming the guys. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, it's really – I didn't understand Ohio State was Ohio State until I played in the NFL and I came back to a game. Because, as you know, when you're in those games, you don't really know those people are there. Because we, yeah. never, we never were taught to pay attention to the fans because they can't do anything to you. Right. Pay attention to them dudes in the other shirt. And that's what we did. So when I came back, we played Notre Dame, I think, when I was playing for the Vikings. And Terry Glenn was on the team. And um, and, and and I think Eddie was on the team then, too. And I was just like, this is unbelievable. Right. And I asked my wife, I said, is this big people actually here? And she yeah. goes, you never noticed them? I said, no. I mean, I didn't know the people outside. And right. came there. It was halfway filled. So that experience was beyond. And, again, I, we could talk for days just about understanding being political, being smart, being intelligent, being humble. Right. have some humility. Throw yeah. a helmet in practice at Ohio State. Throw one. one right. You might not see you no more. Right, right, right. That's so <laughs> this is true. the reality of it. And, and you, mentioned, you mentioned the pros, too. And let's talk a little bit about that, too, because obviously, you know, you, you played in the NFL for multiple years. I think three, three different teams. And so that experience must have been obviously different from college. Talk to us a little bit about that experience and, what, and some of the differences between that and what you learned throughout that process versus uh, being in college. Again, I mean, I can't keep – I mean, it's just the truth. I mean, so, but playing at Ohio State, you really were playing against the best. I mean, we got guys literally, the playing the pros can't play at Ohio State right now. They just can't. <laughs> I mean, it's the reality right, of it. Right. You, I'm just being real. Mm-hmm. And when you ask Ohio State players, when you go to training camp, how many guys were there that couldn't play at Ohio State? And they said five or six of them. They couldn't play there. Yeah. So, mm. I mean, it's just, it's a different place. It's just different. And, and until you experience it, you can never understand it. So, right. going to the pros for me, in fact, it was, I had to come back and condition myself. I was getting out of shape in the pros because we had some of the best strength and conditioning coaches in the country. Mm. I mean, you think about it. I mean, in 1987, we had a field house. People were trying to get field right. houses now. And right. I'm thinking, at the time, I thought it was normal. I'm like, okay, this is what it's supposed to be. But then you look at other colleges and you're like, they don't have a field house? They put yeah. in the heat still? Whoa, I mean, just... Yeah. It, it just, you know, to me, that experience being there helped me with the pros because I knew how to push myself over the edge. Because mm-hmm. every damn practice, I was pushing myself over the edge. And the competition really was with yourself. Yeah. And one of the things that I could tell you that Bobby Turner, who's a running back coach and probably the best running back coach in the world, said to us, all of us, I got 14 egos and I got one ball. Whoever controls the ego going to get the ball. Mm. Most mm. people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. You control your ego enough. 
yeah. the ball. And and a lot of guys can't control their ego. And that's and that's just the reality of it. And just your footwork and everything we did. And we think about Raymond Harris, almost every running back I played with played in the bros. Raymond Harris. Yeah. Um uh Carlos, Robert yeah. Smith, yeah. Paula Bainote, mm-hmm. Jeff Catherine, they all played. Raymond yeah. Harris. I mean, Raymond was a backup. You think yeah. about that for a minute. Right, right. Yeah. Raymond was a stud. That's crazy. So the, we hear, so we hear that really cons- cool. We hear that consistently across across generations that the training that they received at at Ohio State was actually way more rigorous than anything that they saw when they got to the next level. But just the mind state, though. I mean, we the presentations you get, you just sit back and go again. You think it's normal because you don't know anything else. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that I have an advanced degree, Mecca, you yeah. got an advanced degree. That's what mm-hmm. we do. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the expectations. Mm-hmm. So I sit back and I go, "Thank God I made that decision." I mean, yeah. I mean, undergrad is an expectation. Uh, right. Law school is what you did. I mean, so for me, get my master's degree. It was like this is before guys are graduating early. My fifth year in college, to I registered. I was in grad school. Yeah, well, talk, about, talk, talk about that too, because you know what? First of all, you have your master's in was African American African studies. It was yes. called Black Studies back back then, probably right, and then they changed yep. it. What mm-hmm. What made you decide that you know to to kind of pursue that to pursue a master's first of all in general, and then to pursue that specific master's as well? Well, one thing you learned at Ohio State right away, and I know people are gonna get tired of this here in Ohio State, but time's not on your side. You think mm-hmm. you got time? Nah, time's not your friend. I mean, if you think you start counting that time, you're probably not gonna be playing at our school. Mm-hmm. So for me, I didn't want to waste my time, and right. so. First thing I did was I went to school right away. I thought I was going to be an education major. I thought I was going to be a teacher. I was going back to my high school to be the football coach. And that's what I wanted to do. And right. once I went to grad school, I had a whole different global thought of life. And it was like, I don't know what I want to do. And then I started doing internships. And that's another thing. You, 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 were, you were pushed to do internships. I did an internship at the National Football League Players Association. Mm-hmm. Wrote Gene up short a letter. We didn't have emails at the time. So I sent Gene a letter just saying, you know, I would love to do an internship. He said, all right, no problem. I sent to my resume. I did, I did an internship with I did an internship at Anheuser-Busch. I did an internship with uh, Frank Cass down at Continental. I just wanted, I was curious. And I guess that's the one thing that, that I did get, and I wish other people did. Your curiosity is something that was influenced. It wasn't beat down to go, why, why are you curious about that? I mean, the reason yeah. you have a law degree is because you were curious about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's crazy because, you know, I think one of the most powerful things that we have as you know former athletes and you know former people who've you know been exposed to a lot of different things is to kind of talk to the next generation right so before we get into some you know some of your more professional stuff after football i want to ask you this question because you just touched on it a little bit if you were to give advice to kind of a young guy right now who's who's in college uh who's pursuing his degree or you know obviously wants to go to the pros what what things would you tell them to make sure they focused on before they graduated the only thing is to be yourself. I mean, you can't hide. At the end of the day, you better be yourself and be the best version of you. Other than that, work on your strengths. Mm-hmm. And your weaknesses won't show. But people tell you, work on your weaknesses. I'm like, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> keep working on your weaknesses. I'm going to keep working on my strengths. Right. 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 You don't have enough time to catch me. So work on your strength. You're gifted. You're amazing. You're good enough. And consistently work on yourself. People always look out externally. And, and that's another thing, too, Ohio State. You better understand your role. When you walk into a DB room, a wide receiver room, are you the alpha in the room? Or are you going to be the alpha? Mm-hmm. Understand there is a pecking order. And those mm-hmm. who are patients, what I talked about, it becomes you. My redshirt freshman year, I had no, no, no thoughts in my mind I was going to be starting. I didn't play a lot. I was pissed off. But patience. All right, you can see your time coming. 
And so also, too, it's a process. I tell young people all the time, everything's not going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they grew up in a generation. It's like apps. They switch over to the next app. Mm -hmm. Your life is not an app. Your life's going to take time. And the process, anything that's good is going to take some time. I mean, the Bible describes it as a pomegranate. You know, I mean, you know, a beautiful thing is a pomegranate. Most people don't buy that pomegranate because it's expensive and it's fruit is hard to get to. Right. So they just skip right over it. I'm eating something that's going to be easy to eat and it's going to be quick. But the best thing is that you like when you're cooking. Yeah. If you cook it longer, married it longer, it's going to be better. So, right. Yeah. And right. Did I answer? Did I answer your question? Oh well, yeah, absolutely. No, that's a good. That's a very good answer. Great answer, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, and now, like getting back to kind of the timeline, you had a six-year career in the league, which is a good, good long career, right? Most, I think, the average is about four. Three but for a running back, maybe two three and a half. for a running back. <laughs> yeah. so you you did have a good career, and mm -hmm. we often talk to people and and former athletes, especially people who've played at that level at Ohio State at the NFL. The transition time when that's taken away from you, when football's taken away from you, is difficult for a lot of guys, right? Um, take us into that time in your life, what you were going through, the reality that it was over. And and adjusting to what am I going to do now? Well, it wasn't a transition; it was a seamless process. Um, again, unfortunately, your training, you're taught to paint with details, like John Gordon's book, The Carpenter. You don't have a Wagner power paint in your life; you paint details. So the details of my life started with doing internships, being curious. What do I want to do? So everybody's going to transition. My transition came in 2011 when Gene Upshaw died. I, I mean, I worked for the NFLPA. I've been at 13 years, and Gene died. And I was like, okay, here's your transition. What do you do? Okay, what are you good at? What are you successful at? Who do you know? Start building relationships. Go back to the drawing board. Just go back to what you know and go with that same recipe because it's always going to work. And the people that know you, it's the reason I'm on the show right now. If I didn't have a paradigm of success, Mecca wouldn't have me on the show because he doesn't want people to, you don't want the show to be portrayed that way. And another thing I would tell the young people, what you do between 18 and 21 will affect your 45 and 50. That's, mm. I'll say it again. They don't think in their mind 18 is going to affect your 45. Your 18 is going to affect your 50. Well, I'm 51. When I was 18, you probably were one, man. But my 18 to 24, to now my 50 says, you know what? I'm having Scotty on my show. I'm going to have him on my show. And if I had done something silly to Ohio State, you couldn't have me on it. And that's just the reality of it. And some of the stuff you do right now is because of the internet, it's never going away. Just call Google. Right. <laughs> All right. That, that's yeah. definitely real. And then you eventually ended up Glendy. Yeah, you you ended up at the NFLPA. Take us take us into how you you said you had an internship, how you initially got into the NFLPA, um and, and a little bit about your early time there, transitioning from the player side to now being part of the union and, and being responsible for the well being of the players that currently were playing. Yeah, it was it was good. It's a good question, and I'll take it quickly as I can and efficiently as I can. Um, at the end of the day, I came in and Gene Upshaw saw one thing: I was a leader. I was comfortable being myself, and I had a language that I could speak to the younger people that sounded like him, but it educated them. So you needed to go in the locker room and talk to Tom Brady, but then you had to talk to somebody who didn't even go to college for two years, maybe three years. So being able to speak a different language and have that dexterity. It's something that, again, taught at Ohio State. You can't walk up to a donor and go, hey, what's up? My name's Scotty. No. How you doing? Nice to meet you, Scotty Grant. What are mm -hmm. you majoring in? So just being able to have that dexterity and understand the crowd and who you're talking to and be able to use the different languages is something that's a skill that is honed. And Gene saw that, and he was like, I could take this guy with me on the road. 
He can go into a meeting with 53 guys from different economic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, and he can tell them the same story and they'll all understand it. Mm-hmm. So at that point, Eugene just started, you know, he kept, kept feeding me. And the more I learned, I learned and I learned, and he would give me assignments to do, go out and do this, go out and do that. And um, that's how I grew. I mean, just being myself at the end of the day and then building relationships. Yeah. Um, you know, with players. I mean, and again, you can't, you can't fool players. No. You can't. I mean, they know. <laughs> right. You, they know. When you guys know when you go to the basketball court, just the guy got the coolest shoes or meaning the best player. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you could tell by the first dribble if this dude could play or not. So when you walk into a locker room, they know if you yeah. care or not. So to me, I came in as a formal player. I don't really know y'all. I want to know you and I care about you. And then thirdly, I want to serve you. How can yeah. I help you? Right. So talk a little bit about that, too. Talk about what were some of your kind of professional roles while you were there? Because like you said, you were there for 13 years. So I'm sure your roles kind of grew and expanded throughout the time that you were there. Well, I was regional director when I first got there. And that was basically I had teams that I would go to. I'd visit all 32 teams. And we were charged of disseminating information on the collective bargaining agreement. In fact, they just signed a new deal. Mm-hmm. And your job was to make sure that it's a small sample. So we had to teach in vignettes back then. And I say 91, you know, through 2000. wasn't a lot of technology. We got Blackberries probably around 2011, 2013. So the communication wasn't like it is now. Mm-hmm. So you actually had to go in and have slides. Eventually, right. we got the PowerPoints. We had overheads. And you had to explain the slice of the pie, why the owners were getting 50% of the money. But you're teaching a group of people who don't really get it until they leave. Mm. So that's hard because they come from college. They're being trained the best places in the world. Then they go to the NFL. And by the time you get there, they don't really understand. Like, what do you do? Who are you, the union? Mm-hmm. three meetings a year. And that's a quarter of their life if it's three yeah. years. And, then, and that 45-minute meeting, because the attention span is small, you better give them something they can understand. And for my, my whole goal was if you get in trouble, call us. If you get hurt, you call us. If your feelings are hurt, you call us. Mm-hmm. We want to be a resource to you. And that's ultimately how you build that. I built that credibility up. And then when Gene died, um, DeMar Smith came in. He goes, I'm putting you on the marketing side. And I'm like, I don't want to go to the marketing side. He goes, I want right. you to go to the marketing side. I'm like, no, I don't want to go. In my mind, I didn't say that to him. It's a guy right. runs the place. Right. He goes, no, nah, you got a lot of relationships. Relationships for money. And I'm like, what's he talking about? And I remember calling Warren Moon and go, Warren, man, they, I don't know about this transition. He said, what do you mean? He said, they moved me over to the marketing side. What do I do? And he said, uh, just be Scotty and do the job. And I was like, okay. So, but as you know, dealing with money and conversations and money, it changes your relationship. Now, he mm-hmm. was a guy that was talking about labor, working conditions, rights. When you go to practice, now I'm talking about, hey, man, can you do this commercial for this amount of money? That's yeah, a different right. conversation when you're talking about right. some money. So sure. I was just authentic in, in everything I did. Like, listen, this trade card company wants to pay you this amount of money. Do you want to do it or you don't? Yeah. And then also, right. too, I knew to tell the trade card company that he's not going to do it for that amount of money. So give me the money that I need. Let me go get this done. So building up that credibility and that trust to be able to get things done was, it was the key. Yeah. And you yeah. mentioned uh, the, the collective bargaining agreement, too. And, you know, obviously that's something that changes, you know, every decade, basically. But talk to us a little bit about that, too, because, you know, you hear a lot. Actually, there are two th- two-part questions. One is, speaking specifically on Maurice, who I've had a chance to meet, I like the guy, but you, you hear a lot of critics. People criticize him a lot in terms of, you know, maybe things that he gets done or acquiescing. But then also just the union itself in terms of people say it's the weakest union, you know, baseball and basketball get things way, way better. You know, no guaranteed contracts, all that type of stuff. What are your perspectives kind of on, first of all, whether or not any of that stuff is even true? And if it is, you know, why it kind of developed that way? Well, you've done history and history going to tell us all the truth. Baseball, by 
least bounds in moons and stars has been. Remember, they all got to go to minor league. They understand mm-hmm. what labor is. And I, and I explained to you a minute ago, our players have three years. And by the time they understand, they had a major injury or they've been fined for something. Then they understand what the union does. Mm-hmm. But as a baseball player, Michael Jordan, Derek G to play for the Columbus Clippers. Mm-hmm. So you have to ride a bus. For our college football players, I mean, they have not necessarily been coddled, but the system they play underneath doesn't affect their labor because they're not in a labor agreement except that they have to stay in college for three years. So they don't right. think about it that way. They think about they think about it as the pros. When you go into the pros, when baseball players look at it, is it labor right away? Labor. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it difficult. So I would never argue about that. I would argue that baseball always had the best because Joe Torrey was a player rep. Reggie Jackson, player rep. Um, and then on that, I could really stick our chest out about, meaning working for the NFLPA, we always took care of former players. And in 1992, when I got into the league, we didn't have a collective bargaining agreement. We sat papers. They were handing papers across the desk. There was nothing bound. We finally got the agreement in 93. We decided to give some of the salary cap back to former players because the guys that went on strike, um, who were our soldiers, they were forgotten about. And Gene always said, let's give back to our former players. And this year, I got my hit, which is like, wow. And you hope you live long enough to go, can you increase my pension? Right. So six years I have, or like nine years in the system now. Mm. And I'm, 50, I'm, I'm 52, I'll be 52 in March. But I mean, in, in 36 months, I could take that. That's a nice little slice. I mean, it's, right. I, think the, I think the players, so we, we had a habit always giving back. And that's how you become equal with everybody. So no matter how many years Randy Moss played Hall of Famer, my pension's the same as this. We've always right. said the Lions should get the share of the of the of the resources. And of course Randy Moss deserves it, quarterbacks do. Because as long as they ride, we're gonna ride. And right. and then you got a hard job, man. You trying to you think about it, populations of people that are from yeah. different decades that are living. Right. And you gotta satisfy them all. Yeah. One of the things that's often mentioned is that it's much more difficult for players in the NFL to kind of take a hardline stance, right? Because one disparity in salaries paid over 16 weeks, that financial pressure to to cross the line comes sooner. Do you think that that's a, that's a reality or do you think that that's just kind of like something that's that's put out there as kind of an excuse? I think it's all a reality. I mean, some players, I mean, that's, that's what makes it tough because it fits different boxes. you got some players who spend all their money. That's just the reality of it. you got some players who save, but you don't have a group of people who, who are being financially responsible, which is a whole nother conversation. I mean, if you think about it, just do the math yourself. Just put $2 million down. Average that over 17 weeks. Make it last 52 weeks. Again, $2 million, Just do the exercise. Mm-hmm. 17 weeks, divide that up. Now make it last 52 Right. Plus taxes, plus agent fees, plus, yeah. Slice that in half. I mean, so, you know, my rookie season, I knew right away I was married. My my wife was like, here's the deal. We don't make a lot of money. And I'm Mm. like, we're rich. I'm making $105,000. She's like, no, (laughs) we're not. Yeah. She goes, we're going to save this. We're going to have one car and I'm going to take you to work. I'm going to pick you up. And I'm like, that was the best decision I ever made. Let's trust and listen to her. Because it was just, I mean, I remember the end of the season, it was like, no more money. Like, no, you don't get paid till next season. But it's January. Yeah, you don't get paid in September. And then it's not full money because you're not playing regular season. You're getting preseason money. That's $800 a week. Yeah. What? That's a tough lesson to learn. Yeah. And a lot of the a lot of the guys, you know, we have friends, obviously, who didn't learn it. It took them three, four, five years. Sometimes they never learned it. 
you know, because when you are making, you know, exorbitant, exorbitant amounts of money, I think at some, you know, some level you can start thinking that that can happen very easily, but you realize very quickly, you know, that can't, we were having a conversation V and I with a, with a current NFL player the other day. Um, and we was told him, we said, look, if you had to go make a thousand dollars right now and it had nothing to do with football, how would you do it? And he was like, I don't know. So I was like, yeah, so you understand that thousand dollars if you just throwing away on some random pair of shoes or whatever, understand like it's it's hard in the in the real world to make that money. But one of the things that you touched on too, um, with obviously with regard to kind of the players and the contracts is the non-guaranteed contract in that aspect. And you hear that a lot as one of the biggest gripes that obviously players have, and even fans who look at the NFL and they say, it's not fair that these guys have to play for non-guaranteed contracts. What's your perspective on that? I think the signing bonus is the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. If you look at the average salary, we fighting right in the top of them. I think if you look at like some of the baseball players who are making 35, 40 million, we got guys making that money now a year. Right. The signing bonus is coming straight to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally coming straight to you. And those contracts, I mean, Bobby Bonilla got a guarantee. You still got to play. I mean, it ain't like baseball going to pay you and you're not playing. Right. Right. You know, or basketball, so- you got to still play. But do, but when you hear like a guy got oh he got a seventy million dollar contract but then you find but out see, that's, that but, only thirty two million you know of it is guaranteed yeah but you know the crazy part about it? you can get a guaranteed contract in the NFL there's no rule that says you can't do that in a collective bargaining agreement mm. you can get one that's what I everybody well we can't get guaranteed yes you can negotiate one there are some players with guaranteed contracts and it's not my job to tell you who they are but there yeah. are players in the NFL who have leverage. Mm. Who have leverage to get guaranteed contracts? Yeah, trust me, there are players that have guaranteed contracts. Yeah, so I guess not telling anybody, right? So I guess it is a kind of a leverage issue too, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 for us, it's frustrating just because we see we've seen like you know, like for example, we had a friend that signed like a four year, seventeen million dollar contract. He got eight million. Um, eight million was guaranteed, or maybe six million was guaranteed, and then after the second year, he got hurt and they cut him, and then. You know, and then he was never able to and he was kind of told, find his way back. And the thing is, sometimes guys don't know. He was told that ten million of that contract was guaranteed by his his um, representation at the time. So mm-hmm. when the reality hit, and he was cut. Um, that that wasn't what it was. You know, those were some uniquely challenging times, and that's that's the unique thing about the NFL, right? Your your likelihood of getting injured or having a career in the ending injury is much higher. So that's why I think a lot of people are concerned about the the term non-guaranteed contracts. Like, look, the NFL makes more money than any of the other leagues. Mm-hmm. You can make sure the contracts are guaranteed once they sign them against injury or, or other things like that to, to ensure that these guys are a little bit more protected for the risk, the difference in risk they're taking versus other sports. I have it on the other side of that coin. I'll give you a 10-year, $5 million contract, guaranteed. You take it? Me, personally? Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what my value is at the time. But no, you take it. Not. That's my point. Your value is going to change. Yeah. So why would you guarantee something that you can go back and negotiate again? That, I mean, me, that's, that, that's, that's, they mentioned that about Scottie Pippen, right? And his he wanted to guarantee his future. Yeah. Not thinking mm-hmm. that his value would increase in a couple of years, mm-hmm. and but that's kind of the that's kind of the bet that you take, right? The yeah. risk that you take. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. this is a bit. This is you turn into a star. You turn into a star. The game changes for you. But if yeah. you, right now, your rookie season, they say we'll give you five million for ten years. You think I'll take it? 
And now you lead the league in rushing for the last five years. Like, man. Right. Yeah. But on the other side, too, some guys get paid and don't play. Like, they got all that money, and they're not even starting anymore on their teams. That's you true. So you got to look at it. And again, you got to go back to business, though. Right. That's why I hit you with the business one. you like, well, depends what my value is. Right. And automatically, most guys go, I'll take the $5 million. Okay. Right. But with the salary cap, remember, now the salary cap, you gave me a guaranteed contract in 1991. You know what the salary cap number was? For 53 guys. And we had, 30, we had 28 teams. Right. It was... The salary cap was thirty six point three million. Oh wow! And it was twenty eight teams. Yeah. Twenty eight teams. Yeah. Now there's thirty two teams, so that's four hundred more, five hundred more jobs because they have practice squad guys. Now the salary cap's over one hundred seventy million. So if they guaranteed your contract last deal, you would take it. But you'd be pissed, and now you're holding out. Like why is you holding out? Because mm-hmm. you signed a bad deal, and now you're trying to get out of it. Right. What, what do you think about salary caps generally? That's another conversation. That's an interesting topic on mm-hmm. on whether it salary controls caps the it controls the business. Them. It controls the business. I mean, that, that's ultimately it. And the revenue sharing model is something they have to do. We couldn't survive if they didn't do that. If we didn't make them share. Um, it's called the trust. I mean, that's one of the things that Gene and Paul Tagliabue fought, and thank God they got that done. That, I believe in two in perpetuity, they're always going to share money because you got 32 millionaires who don't necessarily like each other. They're under the same brand yeah. as the NFL and they all get equal shares, but they're all not making the same. They're all not valued. I mean, there wasn't five franchises that were half. When I played for the Vikings, Roger Hedrick sold the Vikings for $275 million. Red McCone sold it for $500 million. It's worth like $1.6 billion now, the team, without the stadium. Right. So, I mean, the Cowboys like $2 billion, so they, the value of the franchise is going up. And as long as we grow with the salary cap and the salary cap grows with the ownership, then I have no problem with it. Yeah, Because, because we, actually, we, we actually invest in that. You know that? The players actually help yeah. the players build those stadiums. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and the, the only thing that I, that I wonder is, like, for example, the NBA, you have bird rights to certain players, right? Like what we see often happen in the NFL is a team wins with, let's say they're they're quarterback on a rookie contract. Then what happens is you pay the quarterback and you can't pay the rest of the team. The Seahawks are the best example, right? They, they had to dump money on Russell Wilson. But then what they worked to build through the draft and through scouting had to kind of be broken up because of salary cap restrictions. Do you think that that could work, a model in which there's kind of bird rights on – on your, your players on your roster to retain that? I think uh, just, again, it's the NFL. They're some of the most innovative people in the world. They can make anything work out. And again, you just got to know the leverage you have. If you're Ezekiel, you got pretty good leverage. I mean, if yeah. you are Dak Prescott, you got pretty much leverage. Are you going to fold or you going to hold them? And that's the risk you take. I mean, yeah. Melvin Gordon took a huge risk and, Didn't you work know, out. I mean, you just got to decide. Well, you, it worked out for him, but it didn't work out like it could have. Yeah. Right. And what do you think about Roger Goodell? What, what's your opinion on him as a, as a commissioner? Because you've, you've uh, obviously Roger's, been there through Tagliabue and now Goodell. Um, I, I could take this from Gene Upshaw, one of the best negotiators in the world. Mm. I mean, he, his job was to get the TV rights. That right. was his job before he became a commissioner. And he was able to go to CBS, NBC, Fox, because Fox was new. I don't know if you know that. Fox came in like in 93 mm-hmm. yeah. um, and said, pay me. And this is what we're worth. And that's ultimately his, his game plan. Obviously, he's a great leader. Um, he does exactly what the owners want him to do because, you know, he does what they want him to do because he wouldn't be there. I mean, you have 32 billionaires. They're not going to have somebody negotiate for them. They're not going to be in a strong position. Right. And, you know, he, he does his job. I don't have a personal opinion against him. I, I do know him. Um, if you saw me, you say, Scotty, what's up? But it's a job he has to do. You can't take yeah. that personal. Right. Yeah. 
He's not. What? He's not there for his public relations. Right? <laughs> yeah, no. He's he's there. To, he's there to make that cash. One other question too, before we move on to Arizona State, is that you know we had the community relations manager for the NFL on our show a couple of weeks back, Christina Hovestat, and one of the questions that we asked her was, what does she think is the NFL's kind of responsibility in social justice, right? And you know, obviously, it's a corporation that that you know is responsible for putting the product of football on the field. But, you know, you also have a constituency in terms of fans and players who care a lot about social justice issues, not just Colin Kaepernick. What are your thoughts on that in terms of what the NFL's kind of responsibility is when it comes to social justice? I could never actually measure the amount of eating in a cup, um, but they do a great job with breast cancer. Um, obviously, the fines, I don't know if you know the fines, go to Nick Bartacani. And when you get plagued, it's fine for socks or something. That money goes to three different charities. You can't tell an independent business. You wouldn't go to Target and go, that's the difference. People look at the NFL like it's a holy grail. The NFL. Well, people don't go to Target and say the same thing. Mm-hmm. People don't go to Walmart and say the same thing. I mean, that's just the reality of it. So I can't never judge another man um, how they run a business. I can never do that. I never will. I think we all we need it from everybody. I just can't put all that weight on the NFL and sport, even though sport has a huge example, obviously, from Nelson Mandela. I mean, you know, what what, what um, rugby did for that country is unbelievable. So, yeah. yeah, we have a responsibility in sports to pull people together. But I, I mean, as far as I think they do a lot in social, what they're doing, I think they have done a lot. They've had some roundtables. But again, there's different personalities in, in the whole thing. So once you've got personalities and people have agendas, you don't know what's going to happen. So I don't really want to add a lot of weight to that space. I just mm-hmm. think they do, a, they do a lot. I mean, they do a lot. Breast cancer was they do. Uh, what I love is the um, the mental state when they do that. That to me, when they were, I mean, because I mean, a lot of us don't ever really talk about our mental because we're yeah. strong, football, mental. Uh, the mental gym is affecting a lot of people right now, and they don't even know it. Right. Absolutely. So let's talk. Let's talk about Arizona State, man, because you know you're a senior, uh, senior associate athletic director at Arizona State. Arizona State is all the way across the country, right from from where you grew up, and then obviously where you played football, and then also being in D.C. First of all, let's mm-hmm. talk about the transition, kind of just to the to the state, right? Uh, and then also, what you know, what was it that drew you to that program? It's about relationships, as we said. Um, Ray Anderson and I was had an intimate relationship. He was second, third in charge of the NFL, and before that, he was with the Falcons. Before that, he represented Danny Green, Tony Dungy, um, Brian Billick, Tyron Willingham. These were all my coaches on the Vikings, wow. so I've always known him. And I always looked at, you know, I said, man, this is like, you know, I want to get to know this guy, get the chance to know him. So every year at the Pro Bowl, I would always chit a chat with him at the gym because I love working out. He works out. And I, I said, well, if you get an opportunity, I'd love to work for you. But I didn't want to work for management. I didn't. I just got, it would be hard for me to work for a club. It'd be yeah. really hard. I just, you know, I could figure it out, but it'd be hard because I know what they think and how they mm-hmm. think and how they operate. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, he uh, 2014, he said, you still want to work with me? I said, yep. He says, all right. Don't tell anybody. I'm going to Arizona State. I'll bring you in. I said, what? Okay. So now I'm like going to work on Monday, going to nervous. He says he's going to hire me. What's going to happen? Did I get right, my letter. Right. How do you do that? Now I think of this is my first time ever really transitioning because Gene yeah. hired me from the internship. So it was like, all right, what do you do? Cover letter. You know, what do I do here? And I'm like, who do I tell? Got to tell somebody. I got to tell my, I told my wife. And I'm like, she's like, all right, I can't tell me about it. My daughter's going to go to college. So I'm like, you know what? I got to tell her, but I can't right. tell. I just, uh, so, you know, in those situations, when you're in high level, you really, you know, you want to keep that thing shut as much as you can. Yeah, for and, sure. Um, 
And uh, in June, he brought me on. I went in and resigned. I mean, it was just something new, and it was exciting. I never really understood what the AD did before, even though I didn't really see Bill Miles as an AD. I saw him as an extension of football. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't really look at like I didn't even know what AD was when I was there. I I think that um, what was the guy's name that in freshman year he quit. He quit. That's when I first learned what integrity was. Rick Bay. That's his name. I'm glad I remembered his name. Rick Bay. My freshman year, 1987, he was told to fire Earl Bruce. He said, I'm not firing Earl Bruce. And that's what I learned. I never knew what integrity really meant. I mean, integrity, do what you say, you know. Everybody uses the word integrity. Mm-hmm. Rick Bay said, I am not firing Earl Bruce. I quit. He quit. I, mean, we, I, I couldn't believe that. And after that, I don't even know who the EAD was because I, I never was really in trouble at Ohio State, so I didn't go visit him for that. And then yeah. I had no needs to go to talk to any ADs. I went to my Larry Romanoff and Kate Riffey and them, did my study, went to lift and play football and went to school. I didn't. I didn't really understand what they did. And so when I became AD, it was like, all right, who do I pattern myself after? Went back to Warren Moon again. Be yourself. Make sure the people know that you're going to help them, you're going to listen to them, and you're going to guide the best way you can. So I just went on a fact find a mission to figure it out. And through the process, we hired 17 new coaches. Um, we have moved up to Directo Cup every year. We're in the top 30 right now, best programs in the country. Um, we've added hockey, we've added triathlon, we've added lacrosse. So we're adding sports and people are dropping sports. Um, we're probably one of the most innovative universities in the country. Um, during this COVID operation that we're going through right now, our online platform is is world-renowned. So it really didn't skip. We didn't really, it hurt everybody, but it didn't yeah. hurt us because our student athletes and our students could take online classes. And so people will talk about our aerospace being this party school, but this party school is pretty innovative. Mm. And just the fact that, you know, people, it's hot. So it looks like you're having a lot more fun, I guess. Right. There was plenty of parties at Ohio State. Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> so that's the transition. And it's been seven years now. I'm going on my seventh season. It's been a blast. And my daughter graduated and my son graduated from Arizona State. So they both have degrees. Um, and they Amazing. both have, you know, yeah, really cool jobs too. And in fact, my both my kids work for unions. Wow. Wow. Well, not to go off topic for a second, but you've mentioned him twice now. Um, Warren Moon, who I've got a chance to to read a bit about. It's it's obviously an am- amazing football player, right? But also what he's done with his career after football as a businessman has been amazing. Why is he someone you always go to in these scenarios? And what do you think makes him so special as a mentor and as a as a entrepreneur and businessman? Well, you're gonna be a lifelong learner. And Swahili, they call it Funzi, Wana Funzi. It's a learning, lifelong learning. And um, and you're going to seek, when you get hurt or you need an answer to something, you're going to scream, whether it's your God, your wife, your mom, you're going to look for somebody that's going to give you an answer. And I remember when I played for the Vikings, me and Warren used to talk. And um, I asked him about, like, one day I said, yeah, my son asked me was I his friend. He was like, um, yeah, yeah, tell me he was best friend, but you was dad first. Because, you know, I didn't grow up with a father, so I never really got those lessons. And one if I'm 52, one got to be about 70. Because one about 40. <laughs> no, listen, he, he is long ball right now. I guarantee you better than half the guys in the NFL right now. And to me, you got to realize me being me, I used to hang around Warren. And I'm like, yo, I get to, I watched him. Then I played with him. I mean, I'm looking at a little minutes Warren Moon right there saying 60, 70 outside check with me. And I'm looking at him going, I'm trying not to be a fan, but I'm like, that's Warren Moon. That's crazy. Give me, yeah. give me the ball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you talk about and in leadership, man. You talk about just, ooh, man. When he spoke in the huddle, he meant it, and it just, it was, it was unbelievable to me. I mean, I played with like nine Hall of Famers, um, and he probably is, man, right up there with 
you know, Chris Carter the same way, but I seek information from Chris Carter too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, when you when you set that pedigree right, I'm shocked when I call people to pick up the phone. I'm like, this dude just picked up the phone again. And knowing mm-hmm. I've been knowing these guys for almost 30 years now. Yeah. So, you know, being able to build that rapport with people that you trust and seek advice, because I mean, here's one ultimate star, you know what I mean? But he doesn't even act like it. I mean, we'd be at places eating dinner and, and people say, could I, could I sign that? And I'm like, we can raise the collection to our stakes. And he's like, hold up, no problem. He'll sign it. And then he'll tell us, wait till I'm done eating. But he would sign. I'm like, this is, so who am I not to be able to do something humble or say hi to somebody? Right. He's a guy that's in the Hall of Fame. And he, he will literally stop and take a picture with people. I'm like, wow. Then he also told me, too, don't hug people. Don't let them hug you. Stand there with your hands in front. This is before you could crop pictures. He's taught me that to keep your hands here. Because especially little kids. So it was like, like little things like that, you don't really get the lessons. And, you know, like Gene also told me, don't hang out in bars. Mm. Yeah. Go back to your room. Don't hang out on bar. I mean, just yeah. little lessons you get. If you're open to learning them, people constantly give them to you every day. So, yeah. That sucks. I mean, Warren's got it out that I'll call today. I mean, Warren, yeah. you know, man, Scotty, what's up, man? I'm being in Arizona for two days, man. Let's, you know, catch up. I'm like, all right, cool. And so, when a guy like that comes to town, you you stop everything and well, you go see it, him and look at him. It's interesting, too, because, you know, part of, you know, part of sports, what makes sports great. I think is, you know, especially for people who played and even at any level, really, even in high school is the camaraderie. Right. And then also just the relationships that you develop in um, some of these relate. And then also the network. Right. The reason why you and I were able to connect years later, we didn't go to school at the same time. We didn't know each other was because of kind of the network and, 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 the, and the brotherhood, you know. And one of the things that I was proud about uh, moving back to Arizona State a little bit is when you moved to Arizona State, I was like, here goes Scotty again, expand, expanding the network. You know what I mean? Now he's taking it coast to coast. He literally coast to coast. And um, and then having influence there. And when I see certain things happen, I'm like, ah, I know Scotty was involved with that somehow behind the scenes, you know? So it's uh, it's it's also influence. And when you're talking about being in an athletic program, you also realize how many different things that you can kind of, how many different lives you can affect and change. And now one of the questions I want to ask about specifically was Herm Edwards, because obviously that was a huge hire, one of the biggest hires in, in sports history, really, uh, at least football, college football history. And um, that seems to have made a tremendous splash, not just because he's a great coach, but a good person. Talk to us a little bit about that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you, you know people. And, it's, and when you read people's resumes, that's the picture of themselves they see, of themselves. That's not what you see. The true mm. resume is the resume. When people read it, they go, oh, that's him. Mm. That's who that is. Just walk through the door. Herm was beyond that. I mean, anything you thought was, I mean, I, I mean, you just like one. I mean, the door is wide open. Walk in anytime you want to. Coach, what's up? Oh, good. I'm good. I mean, unbelievable. And the great ones are always like that. They're available. I mean, mm-hmm. Ray Anderson is the same way. The door is always open. 24 yeah. Open the door. He's come in. I mean, and that's the policy and that's the, that's the culture that you want. And it starts with culture. You want open door. People who come to you, you don't want layers. You don't have kings and queens and monarchs. And man, we all working this thing together. We need levels for answers and questions and structure. But most part about it, if you need help, let's go get some help. But mm-hmm. Herm is, I mean, how much time you got? I mean, I could tell you from just, there's a first, second, and third bus like the pros. First, second, third bus like the pros. Missing mm-hmm. bus. You're getting left. You're not playing at that. I mean, he's, it's almost unbelievable. I'm thinking, yeah, this is going to work. And in my mind, it's like, I'm with it. It was going to work. We got a first, a second, third bus. So the guys that want to be there early, get there early. The guys mm. are the medium guys. And the guys don't want to be there early and sit in the locker room, look at each other, take the third bus. Mm. That's, I mean, he that's, just, he, I mean, it's unbelievable. 
Yeah, it, it's 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 great to hear you talk about it too because you know we see what we kind of or we know about her basically from what we see on TV and different vignettes and basically you know that type of stuff and but it seems like everybody that you talk to you know has kind of the same. It's same unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you walk in there right. I mean, you walk. I mean, I brought Warren down there when he came into town, and you know they know each other. They contemporaries, man. I'm just sitting listening. These guys looking, going, wow. Mm-hmm. You talking about funny? I mean, Herm is almost like. You kind of look at him and just, that's him, but he's really like him. And the sound yeah. bites and just, you go, I caught that. Let's talk a little bit, too, about about kind of the challenges that are being faced now. Because obviously, not just with football. I mean, every, the big conversation is, is there going to be a football season, right? Everybody's, like, scrambling around that. And, uh, you know, first of all, what are your thoughts on kind of whether or not there will actually be a season? And if – you know, if there is a season, what kind of challenges, uh, you know, obviously exist to make that happen? I mean, honestly, it's way too much over my pay grade to even think about. Um, mm-hmm. This is something my wife and I talked about this morning. That it's unbelievable. It, it shut everything down. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been through Katrina. Um, I've been through, you know, we saw Sandy in New York. Um, this, I was live at 9-11, but this is like economics, um, political. It doesn't, it's not a bias. It's it is what it is, and it's a new mm. normal, and I, I really don't know. I mean, who would have thought, I, uh, you know, six months ago, I'd walk to a grocery store now and make sure I bring my own bags, um, mm-hmm. sanitize my hands before I go on when I go out, make sure I have a mask on. I mean, it's just, it's unique, and I'm thinking even, like, when one of the things I oversee is strength and conditioning. I mean, you can could, you could only have 10 people in the weight room at one time, so you're not in these shifts. Now, how mm. you walk them in, how you clean. So I've been in those conversations. The whole thing's going to be unique, and it's going to check out the resilience of our country. And I think sports has a way of making everybody feel like it's going to be all right. And right. Um, I'm hoping that, that, that we get through this. I hope that basketball starts, baseball starts. But I want to get through it safely. I don't want the bounce back. I'm, I'm trying my best not to be too cynical. Yeah, um, I'm more I'm more optimist, but I'm also looking at the science and, you know, and uh, yeah. you know, we, I think we, all I'm of us just kind of have to have to take the news and information as it comes and make decisions, good decisions, as information presents itself. Right. Um, Facts. I, I also I also wanted to talk. We talked about Herm Edwards, but you guys also made a huge hire on the basketball side, right? With uh, college basketball legend Bobby Hurley. And then I believe, um, trying to remember his name, you you had a surprise, Joshua Christopher, that's his name. Huge recruit mm-hmm. land on the basketball side too. It seems like Arizona State as a program all around is on the upswing. Um, it's culture. It's culture. It's everything. Because the volleyball coach, Sonia Tomatovich, feels like I'm Evans. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Sheila McInerney, who obviously women's tennis, she called me right now picking up the phone. Sorry, fellas, I got to go. Yeah. And so Herm, obviously, football got to get buttered and bread. I mean, got to, and basketball has to. But Zeke Jones doesn't feel any different. Missy yeah. K. Farr, who is a two-time breast cancer survivor, a women's golf coach, and won national championships as a player, assistant coach, and as a head coach, she doesn't feel any different. Tracy Smith feels like this is based in MLBU. And so when you have a group of super friends like that and they all treated the same, ooh, they got a chance for an outstanding culture. And, and, and being in a culture, we're going to help them. I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, I was on a Zoom call the other day with like 25 football players. And and my goal was to tell them I could help them when it comes to choosing an agent. I don't work in football directly, um, um, but I do have some football responsibilities, um, like we all do. Uh, I'm the assistant general manager in our football structure, so I have the strength and conditioning. Uh, Joe Conley was one of the best street coaches in the country. I have the um, equipment room, but obviously that. 
And so those are two things I've done. Football, and obviously, I have some recruiting assignments. So, yeah, Bobby's big time, man. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. We got Lou Dort from Canada. I mean, as you know, Canada's been a hotbed yeah. for a while in basketball. Mm-hmm. So it's how we're recruiting. And if you, you're a basketball player, why wouldn't you want to come here? I mean, and that's the reason. And once they get here, they realize, you know what? Eighty degrees outside, November. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And then, and then facilities mean a lot. I mean, our basketball facility can argue with most pro facilities. I mean, yeah. on the female and male side. I mean, it, so when you say I have these facilities, um, it's 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 a big time conference in basketball. I mean, yeah. it's in California. So really, California is you know anything about Arizona State? When we're really good. California got enough athletes, man. We could split them up and be fine. Yeah, I mean, just that, that's, Cali that's got it. You don't, in fact, if you at SC or UCLA, you don't have to get on the plane. You could just drive right. it that way. Right. Yeah. That's so true. And speaking of, you know, kind of the culture, right? And you, you actually seen and are still involved with to a certain degree, uh, the Ohio State, right, on one side of the country, and then Arizona State on the other side of the country. What differences or similarities, I guess, have you seen between those two kind of programs? Um, they're just different. I mean, you talk about conferences; they're just totally different. I mean, um, I think that the Arizona player now, uh, under our leadership, is probably one of the best positions ever. If you're gonna make it to the NFL or the NBA, I mean, it's just what it is because of what we have to coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then life skills. I don't know what everybody else has, but I know going to Ohio State, I didn't understand that we really had the best. I mean, and the people were watching. Right. Um, but Arizona State, Arizona State, too, won a lot of Pac-10 titles, man. They got a lot of quality players at the Hall of Fame. Randall McDaniel, um, um, Eric Allen. Um, James Harden. Mike Haynes. James Harden. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you know, I mean, it's just some outstanding players. And she, we don't even know they went to school here. It's like right. Curly Culp. Curly Culp's in the Hall of Fame. And he won National Championship Wrestling. I mean, people don't even know they yeah. went to school here. And it's like, they right. went to school there? Man. Mm-hmm. I mean, people yeah. on the lefty played here. Um, uh, uh, Mickelson. Yeah. Mickelson played here. John yeah. Rahm played here. John yeah. Rahm was here a while ago. I mean, again, humble. I mean, John Rahm was like, when I tell you funny, I mean, he's a golfer and he's one of the best golfers in the world. Because I had men's golf when I first came in. I'm looking at this guy and he's looking at me and I'm like, is he good? And they're like, I'm like, okay. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't know if he was good or not. So, right. Right. Like, oh, yeah, he's pretty good. And, and so, also- yeah, it's, it, the difference is just, just that's the biggest difference. I mean, they had their. One thing I can tell you though, they like I don't hate Michigan. I don't. I just like them. Mm-hmm. They hate Arizona. Oh, no, they okay. hate each other. Really? No, that, when I say hate, I don't like the word hate, but they yeah. just they hate each other because it's, it's economics. Remember, it's in the same state. Yeah. Now that was part of Ohio State, Michigan. They were fighting over the border. Right. But it never really got economic. I mean, they they challenge up to like their weight room was they built ten thousand feet feet. They go ten thousand one feet. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just compete on. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. They got this yeah. thing called the territorial cup. That you battle in all the sports, and whoever wins more sports on track and basketball, you get this cup. I mean, literally, like this cup, and you keep it. And we have the cup for the last two years. It's, 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 it's that actually, it's that actually brings me to an interest. To, I was going to ask you about this, but this is actually kind of a perfect segue to that, which is kind of the NCAA image and like name, image, and likeness scenario that's changing. And the reason why I think what you just said kind of brought me to it is because the battles now in recruiting are going to be a little bit more. A little bit different, right? Because you're talking about essentially who can offer what at the end of the day. Who, what, what program, what city? Um, not necessarily the program, but what city, what uh, corporations, and that are, are available. And the fact that you guys are in the same state with another big program uh, can also present unique challenges in recruiting. 
how do you first of all first of all do you agree that you know players should be making money off of their name image and likeness and then secondly how do you feel like that thing is going to actually play out in recruiting one i mean they're just working it out i mean everything you hear is half of what's actually out there and two um I think it has to be something or some mechanism, and I'm not sure exactly how you do it. Again, that's above my pay grade, and I try not to comment on things that I really don't know about. Mm-hmm. I haven't studied it. I've read a light version of it. Um, I haven't really read a heavy version because it's not going to affect me per se, but mm-hmm. I am learning about branding and value and assets because I do understand that from my NFL PA days. So I try to update myself on those items, but I don't really look at those because, I mean, really right now we're just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. So we strive later on. That's my mm-hmm. motto. And that's our motto on the part. We want to strive to survive. We want to survive. And we want to get through this thing without being with any calamity. Right. Absolutely. So we're going to uh, actually I have one more question I want to ask you before we jump into something fun and then we'll get you out of here. Uh, you, you know, looking at your bio, you are also a wrestler and a lacrosse player in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Is that true? If you didn't play yep. football and you had to choose, I guess, one other sport or a career, what do you think? What do you think you would have wanted to do? I probably would have wrestled. I mean, yeah. I was probably my best. I could have got. I mean, I was probably my. You know, I, I don't know how much better football player I would have been, but I wrestling it would have been, because just the athleticism. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, wrestling would I would have been pretty good at that. What weight class were? What weight class were you? I wrestled heavyweight, even though we didn't have a ninety pounder. They got ninety pounders now, so it went from seventy-seven to two twenty, and so wow. I weighed like one ninety-two, and I'm like, I'm Jesus. not losing no weight. I'm keeping my weight for football. Right. And um, so because I wrestled throughout junior high school, but when my freshman in high school, I was 112 pounds. My mm-hmm. senior in high school, I was 192 pounds. So I was mm-hmm. not losing any weight. And so my junior year in high school, my wrestling coach said, come out, wrestle, but you weigh. I said, then the dude's too big. He goes, they're not quick as you, they're not fast, you're not athletic. So just here's what we're going to do. I said, cool. So I did it. And it made me a lot tougher. If you look at some of the better football players, they were wrestlers. Mm-hmm. Luke Fickle, wrestler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ray Lewis, wrestler. Mm-hmm. Sullivan's wrestler. Um, yeah, Robbie White, wrestler. I mean, just you know, they got some. You, you, it just makes you a little tougher wrestling. You think you would have taken your talents to the WWE? No, I wasn't doing like <laughs> all that. Scott wasn't doing that. You know, I had a problem with the singular back then. Scott wasn't doing that. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> Hilarious. All right, uh, one more. I guess I sorry. I just thought of one more question, and then we'll ask some last couple questions, and we'll get you out of here. Um, legacy. You know, you seem like you never. I never really. You don't talk about it, but I, the way you move shows me that you care kind of two about two things. One is about how you impact people. Maybe just that. Maybe just that. How, how you impact people. And I, so I guess my question to you is, what do you want your legacy to be when people ultimately write the story of Scotty Graham? You know, what is it that you want people to say? He cared about his family. He cared about people. He made a difference. He was faithful. And he was a Buckeye. Mm. I love it. I love it. Succinct to the point. And the reality is that those are the things that we do think about you. So that's the good news. You, you know, I'm going to give you your flowers <laughs> now <laughs> while you're here, right? So you don't have to ever worry it. about whether or not that's what we think. That is definitely what we think. So, um, you know, keep keep being you. And thanks for joining us, man. But we're going to ask you some two, two fun questions, and we're going to get you out of here. Uh, the first question is, tell us your favorite, your top five uh, musicians of all time. Miles Davis, James Brown, uh, Whitney Houston. Mm. 
John Coltrane and Michael Jackson. Mm. Legends, 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 everywhere. legends everywhere. I love it. And and also let's let's you your top five athletes of all time. MJ. Um. John Randall. I Peace. played with the Vikings in the Hall of Famer. Um. Jesse Owens. Jim Thorpe. And Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray Leonard. I like it. I like it. I love it, man. And so I, you, you mentioned MJ, so I'm, I'm sure you've been tuned into Last Dance. I guess you will get you out of here on that. What are some of your thoughts of just watching uh, the last dance confirming what you already know i mean i mean you kind of hear these stories and that's what makes mj like a legend like you hear mm-hmm. these stories like you know how he he did this but you understand like he's like no nah, this is what i like doing i like gambling i mean it was like all right well, you gamble and you hear right. about the gamble story so that was cool for him to I mean, it's always good to say you know what you do i mean so that was really cool um and looking at his competitiveness man and how he i mean you hear about him and uh kerr and it's like for him to occur to just grow, we grow through friction. I mean, mm-hmm. time just grow through friction. And Mike was going to cause the friction. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean Mike was going to cause the rub. I mean, some, most most great ones do, though. I mean, yeah. when I played for the Vikings, Chris Carter was in a huddle all day on Scotch. Big it's first down. I'm like, Big right. it's first down. All right. all right. No problem. We're going to make this block now. You know, Moss can get Moss because you're making this block. So there was always going to be pressure, and the great ones always going to push you. They always yeah. going to. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, we've enjoyed it, and actually, we enjoyed this, man. You obviously, we could talk to you probably for hours and hours. Uh, you're, you're, you know, we're inspired by you. We watch you. We follow you. Um, we obviously root for you, and uh, you know, we really appreciate you joining us on the Pilot Boys yeah, podcast. We're gonna have to make a trip out there and see you one of these days. Yeah, man, you gotta come on visit her, man. I mean, you you need to come out like towards the end of football so you can come to basketball, holler at Bobby too. I mean, I, yeah. you guys will bug up the community we got here. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely, definitely, definitely do that, man. So, you know, obviously stay safe, you know, have you and your family. Likewise. Keep us posted. We'll, we'll be in communication for sure. And again, thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. And we have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast, episode 29. Time to hit some news and notes, V. What's up? Let's get it. So let's start with Notre Dame. Notre Dame is, uh, you know, just announced essentially that they're going to be coming back to school this fall. Um, it's not a tentative announcement. It is the announcement. They're going to start actually early, two weeks earlier than they normally would, which is uh, August 10th. I think they're not going to have a winter break and they're going to end early, like in um, late, like before Thanksgiving. Um, and I think the reason that they're doing that, doing it that way is in case there is like another wave of this thing that comes in the winter, they would have a lot of their kids off campus by then. What are your thoughts on kind of that decision? Um, particularly it's, it's May. I understand you got to make those decisions a little early, but, uh, what do you think about that decision? Well, I mean, I think that they obviously went through an evaluation process with this thing and, Mm -hmm. There's a lot, there are a lot of things to consider here. 
um, obviously number one, first and foremost is, is it safe is important, right? Mm -hmm. And then the question is, is it safe enough seems to be the more pertinent question now, especially mm -hmm. when we start thinking about just how our economy runs and the fact that there are other variables to consider here mm -hmm. too. I think we've had several conversations too over the last week of the impact that taking people's normal routine away from them that they've gotten used to for years and years, how that impacts people psychologically, right? Yeah. Like now, you know, college kids being at home for months that they weren't supposed to be at home, younger kids at home, parents having to educate them. There are just so many different dynamics that we need to consider when we evaluate this thing right beyond if, if, if they do feel like it's reasonably safe, we have to, I do think things like schools should be opening up. Now, when we get to other things that aren't nearly as important or critical, like opening up bars, I think we're having a different discussion at that point, right? Yeah, and then obviously, you know, just, I should have said this, but I think this comes without having to say really is that they're going to be opening up with strict social distancing measures. They're going to have testing. They're going to have, be you know, doing temperature checks and different various things, right? So it's not like they're just opening up and acting as if everything is normal. They're yeah. going to be opening up with restrictions. And I agree with your point. I think, you know, at a certain point, the analysis becomes, and this is kind of, you know, I, I, I think it's great for people to think globally or, you know, even beyond just not even all the way globally, even regionally. But I think a lot of people are just thinking locally. Yeah. A lot of times you look at the data locally and you say, okay, what is the data locally? Right. What's yeah. happening in New York, per se, is not necessarily what's going to happen in, in Indiana. You know, so that's important. And then, and then eventually the question is going to become, what is the risk? And, you know, you're going to do your risk assessment and you're going to say, what's the, what, you know, what's, what's, what's the cost benefit, right? And because there's a risk to everything, like you said, there's they're both sides of this thing. And there's injury, so to speak, on both sides. And eventually you're just going to make a risk analysis and decide. So I, I, I think that I, in a way I like that they've decided early because I believe that they also know that they have a responsibility to open up safely and that gives them more time to really figure out what does that mean, right? Um, so we'll see what happens. But I think the segue from that obviously is what does that now mean for college football? Again, I understand that's just one university, but even, you know, Gordon Gee of West Virginia came out and said, they expect he expects to play. I mean, you know, a lot of people expect to play. What what could college football look like? I posted some thoughts on it on, on Twitter, but what are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, where I always circle back to is that um, is it safe, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. are people making these decisions based on bias, or are they being objective, right? And I mm -hmm. think. There's obviously a clear bias when it comes to universities, especially Division I programs. The value, the financial value of football is so high that mm -hmm. you just wonder if their goal is to figure out a way to make it work versus let's make sure everything is kosher before we make sure we make it work. Like, how are they approaching this thing, right? Are they approaching mm -hmm. it from the, the process of we're just going to do anything that we have to do to be able to open up and play college football? 
or are they actually being responsible and cautious in their approach? Well, I think the the thing is that what makes this unique is that it's not, there isn't and cannot really be a universal standard for each member institution, so to speak, right? Because everybody is dealing with different issues based on, you know, their location, obviously, what's happening actually in that city and state, you know, how much travel or, you know, international or even, you know, national travel do they have or do their students have to do? Um, what are your classrooms going to look like, right? Because assuming if there's football, there's going to there's be school. What are your classrooms going to look like? And then what does your testing have to look like? What are your, what's your testing capabilities? And that's, so, I mean, there are a lot of different things. So to yeah. come up with a uniform how kind are you of gonna, idea. Even housing, yeah. right? Universities mm-hmm. are responsible for housing many students, right? How do you make sure mm-hmm. that environment is safe? And so before, before we even get to college football, if they are going to open up universities, there's a larger responsibility here um, that they need to consider and football and sports and athletics obviously is important on that spectrum, but it's probably further down the list. Wouldn't you agree? Should be further down the list than a lot it's of pro- other things. It, it, it probably is further down the list, but I guess it depends on who you're talking to and what you're talking about. And yeah. that's the thing that makes this thing kind of complex, right? Because, you know, if there is no football, right, what does that do for the psyche of, people whether we agree it should be that way or not right there are a lot of people that are not going to be able to deal with that well you know oh, what consequences I, I, that I, i've been half jokingly saying we might be headed to a civil war if we don't have football well <laughs> well especially and well and you know you joke around about that and and you know i understand but there's also some truth to that that's actually scary because because of how politicized this thing has turned into it's almost like yeah. if you believe one thing then you're on this side of the aisle and if you believe another thing you're on this side of the aisle and it literally has turned into people hating each other. I mean, the bickering online and the stuff that you're seeing, the protests, I mean, people are really charged up about this. And if that does happen, that football gets shut down, again, that will be, that will, a lot of people will consider that a political decision. And, you know, that's all it takes, yeah. you know, to, to stoke some fires. It's so. interesting because it's like we, there's that saying that reasonable people can, can, can disagree. But what happens, mm-hmm. what we're seeing a lot is a lot of unreasonable people having discussions about major issues that, that move our country and yeah. nobody's being reasonable and no one's being logical in their approach. Well, the other thing, and the other thing too, is that I think it's, it's almost impossible to ask someone to make this analysis devoid of their personal situation. Right. Yeah. I don't care how educated you think you are, or whatever. A lot of times you're going to be affected by if you're, if you're, a, you know, a single parent at home with five kids running around, <laughs> You know, your thoughts on this might be different than are going to be different than some millionaire, you know, who has, you know, no kids sitting up in the valley in in, in L.A. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. it's that's the other thing, too. But we'll see. And, and along those lines, as far as colleges, college coaches across the country, including at Ohio State, um, have returned or at least started returning to campus in a limited fashion. Um, so, you know, I think that people are starting to gear up for the possibility, right? And you have to be ready for whatever. Nobody's going to give you any slack or, you know, give you, you know, you know there's no asterisk next to next year's national championship. It's, it's, were you ready or were you not? So I think that puts a lot of pressure on the coaches as well. Yeah. Um, and the student athletes. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've, they're opening up, right. And they've got to go back to work. Everyone's kind of got to figure out a way to go to back to go back to work. Um, it's it's good that they're they're doing it slowly, um, mm-hmm. and and we're not just just opening up. But the the concern always is is can we leave people up people 
to do things responsibly um, when they have this much freedom to do whatever they want, right? Without rules right. and guidelines right. in place, it's it, that's the concern. So we'll see, and we'll see. And this is this is just part of our society now. So I think everybody from your local daycare to your local grocery store is going to have to just make decisions and. You hope that everybody, the constituents, make smart decisions, and we'll see where we are. This thing is not. Eventually, we will know where we are. So, um, let's talk some music, though, real quick. You know, Takashi Six Nine. You know, I, it, it, you know, there's discussion online whether he should ever be talked about, right? <laughs> and some people say that he shouldn't, and you know, people have those discussions. But the reason why I bring him up now is not even really so much about him, but about something that he pointed out. He criticized Billboard this week. Um, essentially saying that people can buy their way to the number one spot. And this is after his new song, I think, debuted at number three. Um, and he basically said that people are buying buying their way, you know, like Ariana Grande and, and Justin Bieber fired back saying they didn't buy their way. But, you know, their accusations, not just from him, this has been, I mean, we've been hearing this since way before Billboard, you know, are people buying their way to these number one spots? You know, somebody said one of these guys, artists has like four or five different credit card accounts or 10 or 40 different credit card accounts, excuse me, that they use to buy stuff with. And, you know, Billboard is taking to, into account a lot of other stuff now. What are your thoughts about, like, this whole thing? Not necessarily Takashi, per se, but just kind of the accusation and, and the state of the Billboard. I mean, Takashi's case is a classic situation of the message getting lost in the messenger, right? Mm -hmm. um, no one really has any sympathy for his situation um, or what's going on, but anyone who's spent any time in the record industry knows how much manipulation and behind the scenes shit happens, especially when it comes oh, to yeah. ratings and billboard records mm -hmm. and all that stuff. It's a, it's a tale as old as time and it's mm -hmm. not unique to the music industry. It's also no. happens across exactly. any industry where things are measured like this. Right. Yep. And there's mm -hmm. a difference between being number one on the billboard chart and number five, especially mm -hmm. when you're talking about a record with Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber when right. you factor in the cost that probably went behind even making a record like that happen with these two big stars, mm -hmm. the reputational damage, the financial damage that could occur if they don't get the results um, that are needed incentivizes yep. things to happen like this. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't I, be I, surprised. Yeah. I think you make, you make a great point. And you know, it's, it's, it's almost the point that I like to make a lot of times, which is that, almost nothing that we're hearing here is isolated to this industry, right? This is yeah. how business works. When there's a lot of money involved, a lot of money at stake and big financial players at stake. And, and, you know, you can, you have the opportunity to do things. It's kind of like steroids in baseball. People are manipulating behind the scenes. And then what starts to happen and is that you start getting faced with the dilemma. And this happens to politicians sometimes too. You come in with, you know, so quote unquote pure intentions. And all of a sudden you say, wait, Everybody that I'm fighting against is not fighting fair. Yeah. They're all doing this same thing. And there's actually no way that I can legitimately compete with that. What do I do? Now you're faced with a moral dilemma. You say, do I just work harder, you know, running like a hamster in a, in a, on a wheel? Or do I join the game, you know, and figure out and maybe be smarter about it or whatever? And the other problem is that Billboard is including so many different things now with merch and it's just hard to keep up with every yeah. single thing and it's hard to create rules for every single thing but you got to believe again whether or not to, you know about to, this happened to Takashi or 
or not, you got to believe that that type of manipulation yeah. is for sure happening. And, you know, Takashi, again, is he's the master of knowing how to drive attention to himself and be a troll, mm-hmm. right? He's a professional, mm-hmm. the highest level troller in the world, probably, mm-hmm. at least in the entertainment mm-hmm. industry. This wasn't about whether it was three. Him in his position as pretty much an independent artist to come out of jail and have a number three hit is a huge deal, and he's happy about yep. it. So, but yeah, he's he's just he's just creating controversy because that's what well, and then well. and that and that's what he that's what he trades off of, right? Is attention, yep. right? He doesn't. The music is part of it, so to speak, but it's way more than that for him. So. If if this become the fact that we're even talking about this, you know, people talking about this all across the country. The articles they say Billboard removed the him from their site altogether. You know, yeah. it's a it's a whole thing, and all that does is just drive attention and drive attention to whatever song that he's complaining wasn't number one. And you guarantee the streams are going to go up. So from that perspective, it's 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 genius, um, and this is typical Takashi, like you said. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Let's move on. Let's talk about the last dance finale. Um, you know, we've been talking about this for the last five weeks now, and obviously, you know, we were sad that the nine and ten came, and we probably could watch, you know, ten more, thirty more yeah. episodes of this thing. Um, but I think that first of all, I, my question to you is, how well do you think it was done from actual like directorial and production standpoint? And then the second question is, you know, what, what were your thoughts on the finale? I mean, I think it was it was very well done. Obviously, it wasn't perfect. Um, mm-hmm. What issues did you have with it, or could have what could have made it perfect? Well, I didn't necessarily. I mean, I understood why they did it, but I think they could have been a little bit smoother in going back and forth on the timelines. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one thing, but it's hard, you know. You're trying to tell the story of that season while telling his entire career story. story. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not a major gripe. It's a small gripe. And then I think the other thing is that it, you could tell that Jordan being involved in, it's kind of like the difference between an autobiography and a biography, right? Yeah. The fact that Jordan kind of was so involved in he this. He drove the narrative. He yeah, drove, he the drove whole, all, he, every narrative. He drove the entire narrative here. And yeah. I think it would have been, good i know he had control over this thing um mm-hmm. to for it to be a little bit more um kind of objective let me speak on that to, that point real quick too because they said essentially that he wasn't i mean and this is, if you just watching him you could tell this is probably true if he wasn't going to be pretty much involved this way then he wasn't going to do it and they knew yeah. that they had to get him like this or else he wasn't going to do it because there are other stories um first of all you know this isn't about whether jordan's a goat or anything like that whatever but there there are other stories that like you said i wish could have been more objective like the gary payton story that was a real gary payton was a real threat you can you can try to shrug gary payton off and act like i mean you know he wasn't obviously he's not he, gonna he, he was a be- more of a threat than other people but he wasn't a real threat well i'm just saying he was a he threat was the best, he did the, the best job of any player he, ever he, he was a threat that, to the, the he's a threat to the extent point that you can that he can hold you to 22 points or 24 points a game and not, and you're not going to go for 45. That's what, and that's the, that's the problem with Jordan. It's not about whether or not, you know, he can, you know, the, what you, the way you beat Jordan is him not going for 45 and going for 50 and pretty much him, Gary Payton being on him, that wasn't going to happen. And so him, I'm just using it as an example, him kind of dismissing that. 
I would have liked to get a little bit deeper into that. I think I think the um, thing is the, the the overall thing here is though with Jordan, right? Like now we're so used to stars and public figures like being so open and and us knowing everything about them. They're them stating their opinions on every single thing. I think Jordan is a fairly private person, but I do buy mm. like his story that he wanted. I think he really did want to win the finals on Father's Day. That's the type of person he is. Like, mm-hmm. he calculates these type of things. Um, Absolutely. But with that said, yeah. it doesn't dis- discount the fact that Gary Payton did a phenomenal job guarding the, the greatest player of all time. Yeah, and that series would have been different. We're not saying you wouldn't have won, but, you know, he got to, I guess what I'm saying is he got to drive certain narratives. He got to drive the Isaiah. Yeah, he did. He, he definitely drive, did. He had to drive whatever. And even Scott Burrell, the way they made him look, I'm not really sure what the purpose of that was, you know, but, you know, it was just kind of like, you It was kind of to show that he was, I think they were trying to show that he was a dickhead, right? He was a dick, yeah. And but but um, it was almost like he was just, I, it didn't was, feel necessary, you know, and I would have liked to hear from Pippen more, you know, I would like to hear from Horace Grant more, right? Um, yeah. And then, I, and then there's rumors that Luke Longley and Jordan have serious beef, and Luke Longley, Longley refused to even be a part of it. And I guess the beef dates back to whatever. Um, but what did you think about the finale? Take all that stuff out, and you know, what did you think about some of the themes of the finale, and just and kind of the fact that this thing has come to an end now? Well, one thing that we discuss a lot, right, is you know, and I've discussed this with many athletes, and I'm sure you have as well. Um, I had a conversation with with a player back in the day named Drew Gooden, right? And he was like, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, he said that he envied my position as an entrepreneur because he was still an employee. Regardless of the fact that he was making millions of dollars, he was still an employee. And that's one of mm-hmm. my takeaways here toward the end, you know, and them breaking up the bulls, right? No matter how great Jordan was as a cultural icon, the most popular athlete in the world, because he was an employee of an organization, he didn't get his way, right? Mm. Like, he mm. didn't want that team to be broken up. And yeah. it's kind of a reminder, again, of when people say, oh, yeah, these guys are millionaires. They uh, they shouldn't complain about anything or they shouldn't have any gripes or anything. He had no control over a decision that shouldn't have been made, right? Like, mm-hmm. Jerry Krause telling Phil Jackson, I don't care if you go 82-0, and 0, we're not coming back. Like, to not have that power is even the most powerful athlete in the world. Mm-hmm. Something that stood out to me. Um, and then the, the second thing was just Jordan is kind of a study in a maniac, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like he is a maniac. Yep. And, and if you, and, and so that's the thing, I think a couple of things, one, I mean, one funny thing or not funny, but was the, flu game was not the flu game it was the food poisoning game and the way they told that story was like did, 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 are they saying that they poisoned him that they brought five guys five guys came and they were looking in and the trainer said oh i don't have a good feeling about this what do you mean you don't have a good feeling about this like i wish they would elaborate on that you know and then yeah, how could jordan they know it. did they did they order the pizza under michael jordan's name like who, who knows you know people probably figured out where he is and back they knew it was the bulls team hotel they knew right? where they stayed and you probably know, tried they're probably, yeah they're, yeah i mean it yeah, was the bulls, so i wish so. they I wish they would have elaborated on that story. Um, I think one thing that that stood out to me um, about this, and, and I guess just throughout the whole series, is like you said, the he the way he was back then is the way he is now. Even when he's talking about 
a story or anything or reading something or hearing something that someone said, he's so dismissive. He thinks he's like, he thinks improve, improve this, by the way, that he's just far and away above anything. You know, he doesn't, he's like, yeah, they gave us trouble, but, you know, no big deal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. but the reason why he's like that and the fact that he's like that is kind of what drove him, right? Because I think deep down, he, he really did give other people respect. And, and, but he forced himself to elevate um, to a level that where, you know, he just was not going to lose no matter what the circumstances were. Um, yeah. The other thing that, yeah, one other thing real quick that about, about that, about that episode too, was the Scotty thing, Scotty getting hurt uh, in game six against the jazz and, and, and not almost not being able to play. It's amazing that they got through that. Cause who knows what happens? They lose that game and it goes to game seven. History might've been written a lot differently. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's a, that's a great point to what I was going to talk about. Um, and they talked about this in, in the documentary about how Jordan was always present in the moment. He fully was able to analyze a situation in a circumstance, mm -hmm. calculate, and determine what he needed to do in those situations, yep. right? Mm -hmm. I, he in the back. There's no way Jordan didn't know. Oh shit, Scotty's injured. We don't want mm -hmm. this shit to go to a game seven, right? He actually mm -hmm. did that calculation. And then to actually do that calculation and basically take the team on his back mm -hmm. um, and say, you know what, Scotty, I got the Scotty going to him and telling him, look. <laughs> I'm not good. Right fucked, up. Right. I'm fucked up, right? right now. <laughs> yeah, and, and that also goes to show you, like, when when we talk about this team compared to other teams, the chemistry and camaraderie and relationships, whether all his teammates liked him or not, or they liked each other or not, the fact that this team stayed together so long, they understood each other intuitively, mm -hmm. and I think yeah. that's a big part of why they were able to maintain greatness that we haven't seen sense right you see the other thing that i think the other thing that i think and you and i talked about this before but i want to make sure i mention this again it is almost impossible to have a star the caliber of scotty pippen who would continue to play that role for a decade it's yeah. it doesn't it wouldn't happen to just look at just look at all the situations um you know what happened in okc with russell and harden uh you know look at kd he can't no one's trying to be these, you know, that's why the, those type of guys like Clay Thompson is kind of like that, like Scotty, those yeah. type, of, type of guys are rare. And without them, it's because it's, it's not just the talent. It's also the demeanor, the acceptance of and not just what's happened on the basketball court. You're talking about, you know, you're a top 50 grade player, but, you know, people aren't running up to they're pushing you out of the way to get to Mike, you know, yeah. for a decade, <laughs> you know, yeah. not to mention you're underpaid. Not to mention, you know, you're not getting the same level of endorsements probably in that city because Mike is getting them. You know, like, so he's I just small, want to really give a, he, he maintained that small town central Arkansas as kid. And I think he had a deep appreciation for how much Jordan and Phil helped him become a great player, right? And I think that's, 100%. that's, that's something that a lot of people um, don't have, especially great you know, alpha males don't have the ability to do, right? It's always about, I made myself, I did this. On I think you meant, I think you mentioned it. I think you mentioned it too, was he, he, I think in a lot of ways he was great, just grateful, right? Because yeah. like how he even became a basketball star, you know, didn't start off on the team in high school and then grew and then, 
you know, ended up Central Arkansas. It wasn't like he was a guy that went to UCLA or, you know, Duke or Ohio State or something like that and then ended up in the league. So I think he was great, just grateful throughout the process. Yeah. And, you know, that's yeah. the other thing. It's like if he, if he had had that same talent but he was a star guy and came from, you know, UCLA, who knows what would have happened, you know. And so, you know, obviously Dennis Rodman needs to be mentioned, Paxton Kerr, a lot of the teammates. But that was the other thing I was going to say was that everybody's role was so clearly defined. I mean, yeah, Steve Kerr knew he was going to get five shots, seven shots a game. So did Paxton. They knew exactly what their role was. And uh, they were just literally. Kukoc led the second team when when mm-hmm. they needed their rest. Like, yeah, that's, it was that's, a perfectly constructed team mentally as the well. Thing is ego, everyone had egos, but everyone checked their egos, right? Yeah. And, and like, Phil, <laughs> uh, Phil, again, Phil has to get a ton of credit. Even if you just read between the lines and some of the stuff Mike said, Phil knew how to, he said Phil knew how to get me basically to control me. <laughs> I mean, he feels the only person that knew how to control me. If I was getting out of control, he would kick me out of practice. He would. He knew how to control the mood. He knew how to control the settings. He knew when to include me in certain decisions. He he really understood how to can get me to be a better teammate. Phil, without Phil, I mean, obviously Michael Jordan is still M- Michael Jordan in a certain way. But without Phil navigating that and constructing that, and, you know, being the captain of that ship for as long as he was, who knows what would have happened with the Bulls. That's- that, that's that's the reason he has 11 rings, right? It's right. Because he did it again with Kobe and Shaq and kept them yep. under control. But what, you know, one of my favorite moments in the in it was when Steve Kerr told the story about when Jordan told him uh, he was gonna he was gonna pass him the ball, right? And he was like, right. he was like, Jordan was like whispering <laughs> it, and it just goes to show you how much these guys respected him. As a basketball player, Steve Kerr was just so excited. I'll be ready. I'll be ready. (laughs) Michael Jordan was willing to count, willing to count on him in a big moment, and and it and it shows that even if you didn't like the guy, that's why he was probably a great teammate, is because people respected him, and he made sure to to bring the best out of his teammates as well. Well, I think, and I think, last thing I'll say on this too, and you know, not to just have a gush fest, but I think. One other thing about Jordan that get that gets left behind a lot of times uh, was his basketball IQ, right? And yeah. so, I mean, I guess that probably goes without saying. If you're one of the greatest players, you have a high basketball IQ. But a lot of times, when you hear arguments about, um, you know, Michael Jordan or discussions on Michael Jordan, you don't necessarily hear that part of it. Um, you hear it from the, about LeBron, yeah, yeah. But you don't necessarily hear it from Mike. And so that I I mentioned that because of what you just said about that that play with Kerr. That was because he knew what was coming. Yeah, you know he studies. He studied the game. He studied the teams. He knew what their tendencies were. Even the he remembered Steel, their the sequences. Steel, right. Yep, that too. Exactly. So, yeah. um, the Carmelo steal. He knew that Carl wasn't going to be paying attention on the on the Kerr play. He knew that he was going to get double teamed and that Kerr was going to be open. I mean, so that's part of what makes p- people great basketball players as well. So I'm I'm uh, you know I'm obviously sad that it's over, um, just because I think it was a great thing for us to watch during this quarantine. Obviously, it brought back a lot of childhood memories. Um, and it was entertaining. And, um, but the good thing is that I think this period of time has inspired a lot of other things to happen. I think we're going to you know, start getting a lot, a lot of good content um, because people realize that you know, this yeah. is a good opportunity to capitalize. I think the, great, the greatest takeaway, and this is my final thought on it from, from the documentary, is that Jordan has an incredible amount of self-awareness. And I think that that's kind of... The takeaway from all of us understand who you are 
and be comfortable in being yourself, right? Like, yeah, that's that's the number one thing that about him, outside of obviously his basketball talent, is that he knew who he was and he didn't give a shit what anyone else thought, really. Yeah, um, and and that's what drove him. Like, even people saying he's an asshole, you hear the stories about. No, he what he's not an asshole to everyone. He just doesn't want to be friends with everyone. And there's mm-hmm. you know, there's 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 different elements of him that I think they're likable characteristics. There are obviously characteristics you wish he didn't have, but at the end of the day, all of those things made him who he is, and you just evaluate it how you want to evaluate it. Right. Speaking of a great guy, a great athlete named Mike. Mike Tyson, man, you posted something on uh, Fallout Boy social media uh, about a you know, potential fight between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. I don't think it's confirmed yet, but there's, you know, there's obviously rumors that there's in negotiations. And it's getting a ton of, ton of reaction. I mean, a ton yeah. of reaction from a lot of people. What are your thoughts on the, the potential of that happening and, and what the type of outcome would be? I think it shows you the pent-up demand the people who, you know, how spoiled we were for a long period of time in the heavyweight division, right? You had mm-hmm. Tyson, then Holyfield, then Lennox Lewis, and mm-hmm. Riddick Bowe, and all these guys in the and heavyweight division. And before that, and Foreman, and, and, and Frazier, and Ali, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you, you realize that people really in that era, and especially specifically Mike, right? Um, how big of a cultural phenomenon he is, right? In terms of mm-hmm. still beyond the people who are casual boxing fans will tune in for Mike Tyson because they mm-hmm. know who he is um, and just how dominant he was. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, he moves the needle. So what, what do you think about, so what do you think about people who are saying, I mean, I, obviously, you know, I want to get your opinion on the Tyson advantage thing too, but what do you think about people who think that Tyson could legitimately compete with the heavyweights now. I mean, is it, you know, first of all, we saw Tyson in a probably better shape and more of his prime and younger get dominated by heavyweights who are probably worse than some of these guys, right? Especially towards the end. But when you see the video of him training, you start to get reminded of who he was and what he could do. Is it realistic at 53 that he could really compete with some of these heavy, the top heavyweights now, or are we just kind of dreaming a little bit. Well, Tyson still can knock you out with one punch, right? Um, you think any, so? Any given punch, yeah. I think he has that type of knockout power, but I think when you fully evaluate kind of why Tyson didn't survive and last, obviously, there's the off the out, out of the ring, not off the field, out of the ring issues mm-hmm. that everyone has talked about ad nauseum, but it was also, he was at a, one of the things about Tyson that people don't understand in the heavyweight division from a strictly size and reach standpoint, he was an underdog in every fight, right? He's like 5'8". Most heavyweights are over six feet tall. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the amount of energy he needs to expend to even reach up and, and throw punches at guys who often were 6'3", six, 6'4", six, there's a stamina issue, right? And that's why mm-hmm. the, the tale on Tyson was if you could get through five or six rounds, he would tire out. Um, mm-hmm. People didn't understand. It wasn't because necessarily because he didn't train hard or any of that. It was literally, he was expending more energy to fight because he had a legitimate size disadvantage. So now yeah. at 53, I don't know if he can make it past, if he couldn't do Tyson it. Tyson and Fury both like 6'6", six, six, right? Tyson, but, and, uh, 
Tyson and, and Fury and Wilder. Um, yeah, they're huge. They're, they're both huge like 6'6". Six, six. Yeah. yeah, and, and you know, yeah. Lennox Lewis is 6'5". Even Holyfield's probably, he's shorter too, but he's six feet. So yeah. that's the issue that challenge you face. Do I think that he could give you three good rounds? Yeah, but Tyson can't go 12 rounds at 53 years of age. Yeah, 53 is, you know. Fighting style. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll see what happens with that. I'm interested to see what happens. You asked if people would watch it on pay-per-view. A lot of people said yes. Some people said no, but a lot of people said that they would. Um, I'm not worried so, about Holyfield, right? Like, yeah. Holyfield looks like and sounds like he's he already fought too long. Tyson's career, yeah. even though he fought, he ended, even if it wasn't on his terms, he, end, he went out early. Holyfield tried to let this thing go on because of his financial issues. I'm just worried about it. Maybe if... He seems to be about this thing being a charity match, five rounds, one minute each. Right. If it's something right. like that, that's good. But I'm be fine. Yeah. yeah, I'm worried if it's anything more than that. Right. So we'll see what happens with that. Let's do one more thing before we do some final thoughts. Um, 112 and Jagged Edge um, potentially are in, in uh, conversation to do a versus battle. And then DMX and Eminem is another one that I've been hearing rumors about. I don't know if that's if either one of those are true. If so, what do you think about either one of those? Uh, either one of those battles or it's both? It's funny when we, when we were watching the show, I mentioned and I said, "Jagged Edge one twelve, right?" Because I think mm-hmm. if you were in that era, like as far as groups were concerned, like they're a perfect pairing, right? Mm-hmm. They are a perfect pairing. They mm-hmm. were. It it's like Jodeci like and that. Drew Hill. and Drew Hill. Same. That would have to be also. it too. But I don't think. Yeah. You know, and I don't. I don't think anyone can match up with Jodeci, but Drew Hill would have been the best matchup. Drew Hill would have been close, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that one that one makes a lot of sense. Um I think DMX and Eminem would be a great one as mm-hmm. well. I wanted to, you know I think DMX has more hits than Eminem. If you include features, then now you're now you're battling. But if you're just talking about straight hits, like solo hits. I think DMX has more. Well, I think I think it comes it comes back. I think it will be an epic battle, right? Because Eminem, yeah, has mixtape records from the G Unit days. Like you said, once you add in feature verses, because yeah, no if you add in features, one versus one versus record, right? Uh, you know, I think first of all, it's a great matchup because yeah, I think those two guys probably have a, a ton of respect for each other too, for sure. But it, you know, and you also saw that right in this in last week's battle, like. People wanted to evaluate the Nelly and Ludacris thing. Ludacris has more hit records, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and more standout versus um, than Nelly. But Nelly has bigger, bigger commercial, bigger commercial and global hits. Right. And if you look at that, you know, I think you could tell that Ludacris was actually better prepared for how a versus battle works because Nelly was playing songs none of us had that even people, heard. People before. didn't know, yeah. You know, you it's know. not about what you're, you know, I understand throwing in a Biggie song because Biggie's on it. Right. You, you got to go with songs if, when you're battling, you got to go with songs that people Like know. Country Grammar, did he even play Country Grammar? He didn't play Country Grammar, he didn't play the yeah. record with Tim McGraw. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. he left a lot of stuff, even that last record when they were about to go out. I was, like, what is, so why, I was like, what are why, you doing? Yeah. I thought it was going to be country grammar and, for and, sure. And then do the sound check. I think Swiss Beats was talking about it afterwards. Like, yeah, you got to do a sound check. Send the kid out. You know, you could tell that Ludacris did the sound check, made sure everything was kosher. 
Um, oh, Ludacris was way prepared. He had outfit changes. He had yeah, all he, kinds of stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and again, I love Luda. I think you know, even you know, as I was coming up, he was a huge influence on me and, and even my rapping style. I have certain songs that probably sound more like Luda because of Luda, you know. And he is just so unbelievably talented. I'm just happy that he he continues to get this type of platform because I think he deserves it in abundance. You can't even name one song that he got on that he didn't kill or murder. No, you can't. <clears throat> Like, and you could tell the approach that he took to that battle is the approach he took to his career. Every time Mm -hmm. someone asked him to do a feature, he knew what that meant and he took it seriously. And and that's why he's one of the greats of all time. And that's why he has so many, he's done so many great things out of the booth as well. Right. For sure. So we'll look, for, you know, we'll look forward to Nelly these first battles. Nelly. Nelly is obviously great too. I don't. Oh know. yeah, and Nelly did. Oh, I, yeah, Nelly yeah. was an influence too. Nelly did his thing. Yeah, he didn't. You know, he wasn't prepared. But that battle was a great. I mean, that battle was epic. At yeah, the, end of the day. I mean, and, I and his energy, thoroughly. Nelly's energy, and both of their mutual energy, where you mm-hmm. could tell was genuine love, was was great because Nelly kept that thing going. One last thing, and then just some fun, uh, some final outro stuff. Uh, Belmont Stakes, they plan to um, run on June 20th. Um, that's the, actually the first leg of the Triple Crown. They're going to do that without fans. So, you know, people are going to try to people are gonna try to get back to it. You know? I, don't, I don't see any issue with that one, right? Unless yeah. there's a danger to horses getting coronavirus or exposed to coronavirus right. um, in the Japanese. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that's understandable. <laughs> the truth is yeah. when you really understand this is – the economy needs and the sports betting community needs needs stuff to bet on. They need, a, they need, a, they need action. Need action. Yeah. And the last thing for news and notes is uh, rest in peace to Annie Glenn, uh, the wife of John Glenn, who was, um, you know, but she was obviously a big name in her own right. She died actually at 100. Uh, life goals, man. You make it all the way to 100. Uh, that type of life and that type of impact, it's great. So RIP to her. Uh, that's all we have for news and notes. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Shout out to Premier Podcast for getting us set up with our podcast during this quarantine period. Make sure you guys check them out for all of your podcast needs at premierpodcast.com. And make sure you check them out on social media at Premier Podcast. That's all we have for today's show. Big thanks to our guest, Scotty Graham. Thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Subscribe to the Pilot Boys Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And follow the hosts on Twitter. I am at Mechadon Music and V is at Viswant. Also, don't forget to grab some Pilot Boys wristbands at shop.pilotboys.com. Always remember, be you. You was fly. Pilot Boys out. Mechadon.